from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Thursday the 5th, and I've got another, yet another amazing show for you today. Two great guests today. We're going to start off talking about venture capital, and then we are going to talk about pot. Let's get started. I'm very excited to introduce my first guest today. Please welcome Elizabeth Zalman to the show. She is a two-time founder CEO of, this is important, venture-backed companies. She took venture capital both times. However, she had very successful exits from the first one, and the second one grew into a multi-hundred million dollar business. She's raised more than $100 million from top VCs around the world. And the reason we are talking to her today, if that's not enough, she's also the author of a brand new book. You may remember it. It's called Founder versus Investor, The Honest Truth About Venture Capital from Startup to IPO. Her co-author, Jerry Newman, was on the show two or three weeks ago. So it's Elizabeth turn today. Liz, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, Jim. Thanks for that intro. That was great. Well, I, you asked what Jerry and I talked about. I did tease him about his brother, Adam, the founder of WeWork. <laughs> of course, that's you, not you can his tease brother. Me about, you can tease me about my uncle, Rabbi Zalman. Oh, yes. Rabbi I was just at his synagogue last weekend. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so I got a good tease out of uh, Jerry for that. Let's start right there. What are your thoughts on some of these, the crazy entrepreneurs, Elizabeth, who uh, still get money, but my goodness, didn't someone do a personality check in the beginning? Didn't they find out that this guy was a little bit crazy? What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are, and actually I talk about this in the book, that probably the most important part of fundraising is telling a story, is crafting some beautiful narrative that the world is ending or that an investor doesn't want to miss out on the future. And I bet that these mercurial personalities are freaking fantastic at just painting a picture that everybody wants to pour money into. So say what you will about them. Those folks can storytell. Yeah, but it turned out the story was not exactly honest, though. That is true. And that is a question for how that got past the board of directors. Because that job is governance, right? Yes. Their job is to make sure that the company is doing what they say the company is doing. And that means the CEO. And that means management. And, um, and I would say that everybody fell down there. Yes, I would agree. 
Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about your background, the type of businesses that you have started, your BC needs $100 million. My goodness, that's a lot of money. What type of businesses needed that much startup capital? Well, my first business did not. It was an eBay-based consignment business. Uh, I was going to school in Canada and I couldn't get a, a job as an American. And so that's how I kept myself afloat when I was in college. I love it. Um, yeah, I, I, would, I would buy low and sell high. And then afterwards, I, I kept doing it um, and eventually fell into a startup. I was employee number seven in an ad tech startup and actually interesting story the um the founder of one of the founders of icq which aol acquired and became um aol instant messaging that we all know um actually invented uh those banner ads that follow you online with the picture of the thing that you last looked at it's called remarketing or retargeting um and so he gave me my first job after college um, and i was bit by the startup bug um, and that was a venture capital business. And then I went on to start my first one, which got aqua hired four years later. Um, and then I started my last company, Strong DM, which I was at for seven years. And so across those two companies, it was just under a hundred million in VC money. And, and I would say I chose to raise venture capital for those companies as opposed to for the consignment business, because Venture capital serves a very specific master, and this is the master that, that my companies needed in order to be able to succeed, which is to pour money into an idea to move as quickly as possible to win the market. And that's what I needed at the time for both of those companies. Um, most companies today do not need that. My, my grandfather's dry cleaning business did not need that, and his, his watch startup did not need that. Um, those were bootstrap companies. I actually find it interesting today that I think most founders default to venture capital as the way to fund their businesses, as opposed to exploring other options. Um, to me, it's only when you actually need to pour fuel on a fire in order to win. It's a very specific master. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. I'm not a fan of venture capital. Jerry and I talked about they come in and take over that stereotype, the trope. But if you need to go from 20 locations to a thousand, you need some venture capital. Or if you need to hire hundreds and hundreds of programmers, you need some venture capital, right? And I certainly hope that people are looking. It seems, Elizabeth, I'm going to jump on your comment about how entrepreneurs aren't looking other places enough it seems like that's just the stereotypical path you know garage first sale <laughs> you know venture capital ring bell you know it's the the storyline that we hear movie about yourself with brad pitt starring you know it's the stereotype and so you know, and also it's cool. You're not cool if you don't get VC. That is true. Venture capital is, is very sexy and the media loves to cover it. They love it. Yeah. So those terms venture backed are so important. Yes, they are. Although I would say there's, um, you know, there's certainly exceptions to that rule. Um, I remember when we were starting out at strong DM, 
the best calendaring tool that we found, right? Today, you'll send somebody a link. I think just like you did for me saying, yep. please use this link to schedule time. And I think the, the original folks that really hit that one home was Calendly. And I don't think they raised a penny of venture capital for many, many years. They just bootstrapped that. It's an amazing success story. Yes, it is. And I just interviewed, <laughs> so uh, interesting you brought this up, a man who has started a business to take on Calendilly. And he has a website, not calendilly.com, <laughs> which I just love. I just love someone who just goes for it and says, not calendilly.com. Um, that is one way to do it. And his product is great. And it's also not venture backed. Um, so, anyway, why? Are when you are doing this, you've decided that you're going to take the VC. Are there criteria for you? Do do you care where the money comes from? Uh, it's just money, you know. They all have connections, Mister Wonderful. They all do. They all say they have. You know, does it the money source matter? It does matter. Your you, your point is well taken, though. Um, uh. All venture capital is green and it is the same color green. Um, and so at the end of the day, every VC is, is selling money. The question is how do they make their money sexier or more colorful or more sparkly than all, all the other money. And they do that in the ways that you're describing, right? I have these connections. I can introduce you to these customers, so on and so forth. But over, over my years, and I've been at this for, I don't know, 12 or 13 years now. Um, I found that, and this is the reason why I wrote the book with Jerry, um, I found that at the end of the day, it's about, it's about relationships and it's about being able to, to manage through times of strife. Um, and it's about little itty bitty, nitty details in the contract that you sign because at the end of the day, you are talking to these people for 10 years, it's an old startup trope that you're in business with somebody for a decade, but it is actually true. Um, and so, so it's the things that you think about going into a marriage. It's funny. Somebody once said to me um, that what they think about when they go on a first date with somebody, it's, it's not, do I find them attractive? Um, it's not, you know, are they taller than me? Um, it's not, are they interesting? It's, can I listen to this voice? for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, and that stuck with me because, because you're talking about something that matters long-term over a period of time. And it may seem small and insignificant, you know, on a first date, but, but it isn't 25 years into something. So Jerry and I, your co-author, we were talking about disagreeing with in between an entrepreneur and a VC and how you handle that situation. And I was thinking about dating then and my, uh, my mind sort of going back to the same thing. I was single Elizabeth for 12 years and then remarried. So I had a marriage and then divorced and single for a decade and then remarried and we're going on a decade together now. And when I was dating, you know, when you date in your thirties and forties, it's different than when you date in your teens and twenties. By date three, I would try to have a little fight, you know, because if, if I learned on date three that she doesn't fight fair, well, I know I, I'm not going to want to marry that, you know? And so I think that you kind of want to provoke those situations to see how they respond sometimes. You know what I mean? 
I know exactly what you mean. You, and you're right. We do talk about this in the book. I, um, something I learned on my second fundraise. So first was friends and family. And second was the series A at my first company was to pick a fight. And I picked a fight with a lead investor over a, an absurdly small term just to see how he'd respond. Um, and it was completely irrational. <laughs> and so I knew it in that moment that I didn't think I'd be able to have deep conversations with him about the future of the company or particularly, you know, uh, hoary problems. Um, I knew exactly what I was getting into and I've done it ever since on every single fundraise. I think it's important as an entrepreneur. What are you looking for in the relationship? What do you hope that it's going to be like? So you'll see in the book that I have a, fairly cynical, uh, perhaps nihilistic view of the founder investor relationship. I, I think at the end of the day, investors are in it for a return. Um, and founders oftentimes their, their position devolves into keeping their job, especially if they're CEO. And so neither of those things are good. Um, and so to me, what I'm looking for in a, in a relationship is even if I don't agree with somebody on every single every single thing. And even if they don't agree with me, are we working to understand why there's the disagreement? Because these folks are smart. Founders are smart. VCs are smart. Um, these are some of the brightest people in, in, on the planet, quite frankly. And so if they're disagreeing with me about something, there's probably something there. And I need to make sure I understand it to ensure that my position is still the correct one. So we're talking about rational, straightforward conversations about deep topics, some of which might touch ego um, or pride on either side. And those can be hard conversations to have. Yes, very hard, very hard. Would you now uh, start another VC-backed business? Uh, is that something that's still on your plate? I would. I, I would take venture capital again, there are some things that I would do um, differently, perhaps as part of a, a diligencing process, um, certainly different on, on terms in the contract. Uh, I, I joke that I learned something, uh, something new and like a big new on every single fundraise, but, but it's true. Um, but if I'm going to start a company, it's going, it's not going to be a bed and breakfast. And it's not going to be a laundromat. I just know those are great businesses. The America is run on small business, but I know my brain and my brain will only be satisfied with big. Like if I started a bed and breakfast, talk to me in a year and I'm sure it'd be like a chain of Hilton's. And so for me, venture capital makes sense because my job, I believe my job is to spend money as quickly as possible to win without also running out of money. And for the type of business I'm describing, that requires um, capital and usually intensive capital. And then what are the criteria that you're going to look for? Uh, you know, you find someone in Omaha, great fit, but it's Omaha, not New York City. You still going to invest? Do you find someone, you know, what are the criteria that you're going to hold dear to you, Elizabeth? From an investment standpoint? Yeah, from the, from the founder standpoint. 
from the founder standpoint. Um, so the, the number one thing is how, so I'm less concerned with the fund and I'm more concerned with the partner at this point in my career. I can, I can call, you know, the 20 or 30 funds and get, get a meeting and get an answer pretty quickly. Um, but it's about picking up the phone and diligencing the partner themselves because, because that's the person with whom I'm mainly going to be working over the next decade. Um, what don't I know about this person? How do they behave in board meetings? Have they ever fired a founder? Have they ever been part of firing a founder? Um, how do they behave with their investor counterparts? Um, so, so on and so forth. I think a mistake that I see today when I work with founders, um, uh, you know, sort of ad hoc is that they, they don't or they rarely pick up the phone and diligence anyone. They just, they seem to forget that, that they don't know what they don't know. Um, and it requires conversations to figure that out. Um, and I think that many founders walk into situations, especially with investors with, with strong naivete and that naivete does not need to exist. We are, we as a founder group are in full control over how much we get to know and figure out. What's the best way to make the deal happen? How do you close the VC or make them like you in the first place? Are you a hundred percent honest with them? Do you really, really, really let them see your true character? Uh, I'm pretty much the same in my personal life and professional life. I think what you're hearing today is, is what you get. Although I can be a bit circumspect in the words that I use, um, in the fundraising chapter, I actually have a section, which is called Liz's absolutes of fundraising or Liz AF. Um, and it talks about the 12 rules that I've developed over my career in order to pull off a successful fundraise and quickly, um, and efficiently. Um, and so, give us so for me, give you some rules. Yeah. Ooh. Um, let's see. So the most provocative of the, so, so I'll give you some, some straightforward ones and then ones that are maybe a bit more provocative. Um, I will never fundraise without a co-founder next to me. So there's something about being a hero CEO. And I've tried that once. Uh, -uh. I want another voice next to me, paying attention, helping me pitch, writing down notes, jumping in when I don't see that the investor is not getting something, but they do. Um, teams are better together than apart and in no other place, more especially than fundraising. Um, I will also say that founders don't necessarily understand that fundraising is their full-time job. There is no other job than fundraising. You literally have to stop operating. I remember um, the story that I tell in the book is that on my, I think it was my 39th birthday, I was in the middle of a Series A fundraise for Strong DM. And I had eight pitches that day. And then I still had a dinner to go to. Uh, with a fund that was in the mix that night and it was held at uh, Hudson Yards in New York City and I remember sitting outside looking up at the honeycomb structure and I was hysterically crying because I was so tired and all I wanted to do was go home and eat a slice of birthday cake by myself and not talk to anybody but instead I had to walk into that room and well I agree it is a full-time job and you have to have someone behind you and I would say Whoever let you have eight presentations in one day should be fired because that's not humanly possible. 
you know, you just, you're, you're, you're going to be brain dead after four or five, you know, you just won't be as good. No. What do you think? You won't be as good, but, but if I'm fundraising, I could argue maybe minimum viable product. My goal of a fundraising call is to simply get to the next call. It's not to close right there on the phone, right? Just like okay. in software sales. Yeah. So if I'm good enough to get through the call, I'm going to take the call. Yeah. You know, I've uh, been told by a doctor, hey, I'm going to get you a hospital room. And I've put my clothes on and snuck back out the door uh, because I had a meeting with the bank. You mm -hmm. know, so us entrepreneurs do some crazy stuff. We do some crazy stuff. It's true. Yes. And that's why it's so fun. So um, what are your thoughts on passion? If I... Maybe I honest in one of our meetings and tell you, yeah, I love our business, but I'm not passionate about it. I, I I'm passionate about my stamp collection and my wife and I'm just honest. This is a great business and I love what I do, but I'm not passionate about it. Do you still invest? Well, so I, I don't, I, I am not an investor. I tried it once or twice and I found that I was, I was not so good at it because I'm an operator. And so if I, if somebody asks me for advice and they don't take it, I get, I get slightly personally affronted. But if I were putting myself in the investor's shoes, my, well, let me tell, let me tell you a story. So, so when I used to, when I would be interviewing in my last company and, and people would say, you know, tell me why this is the idea. Like, why is this the billion dollar business? I would say, you know what? I don't know if it's the idea. And quite frankly, I mean, I care about the software that we're selling and I, I care about why we're trying to do it. But at the end of the day, if you told me that to become a billion dollar business, I would have to completely pivot and sell cutting boards and wave a flag in Times Square 24 hours a day in order to do it, I would do that because my job as CEO and my job as a founder is to build a big business. I should not care what the business is that I'm building. And if I'm doing my job, the product that I end up with and selling, it's going to be pretty different from where I started out. Very few companies are selling something that is exactly where they started out. Founders are required to pivot and move and adjust and not have ego about the original idea. So I would, my expectation would be that the investor would be able to perceive that in the statement that you just said. It sounds pretty reasonable to me. Interesting. I love your thoughts that it's our job to pivot. And every time I hear pivot, I think you didn't get it right the first time. Why, why don't we lose points for not getting it right the first time? Why do we get points for the pivot? What that is acknowledging is that I spent two years studying the industry that I claim to be the best at and got it wrong. I spoke to customers for two years, but somehow the data we uh, collected is wrong. And now I've spent 2 million of your dollars. And what I've learned is that we need to pivot. Oh, you ain't getting two more million to me from me. Uh, why could you, you said you spent two years ago and you came in and pitched it as if you knew it. And now six months later, you want to change. See, I'm going, I'm, I'm getting pissed about it. I pivot bad. What are your thoughts? <laughs> It, so if, if I've spent two years disqualifying the product, I'm getting 
I as an investor am probably getting a little suspicious and I'd start to question the founder's ability to perceive the truth or to actually hear what prospects and customers are saying. But if that's over a three, six month period, I think it's, it's totally reasonable, right? My, I, I said a few moments ago that it's my job. I believe my job as a founder is to spend money as quickly as possible to win without also running out of money. So that's a, you know, that's the, that's the needle to thread there. Yeah. I did like that definition. Well, I think Jerry, Jerry does not. I think he actually objects to it in the book, but that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. And we will have to do it another day because we are running out of time. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Great conversation. And, uh, I love what you and Jerry have put together. One of the reviews of your book said, like something to the effect of finally, obviously this is a book that we've needed for a long time, a clear, uh, analysis of the roles and the tropes, the stereotypes of the founders and the investors. So I think I love it. Great job. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Jim. How do you want us to find more follow online, get a copy of the book, all that stuff. Get a copy of the book wherever books are, are sold. It's founder versus investor or founder versus investor.com. And if anybody wants to connect with me, I am exclusively on LinkedIn on social media. It's just Elizabeth Zalman. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us and I uh, hope you'll come back. Why, why not X do you, or Twitter or something else? Why exclusively LinkedIn? There are other good business platforms. I'm not on Facebook either. Actually, I never have been. I'm, I would worry about my mental health stalking ex-boyfriends ex if I were ever on social media. This is from way back in college. <laughs> uh, I agree about that. That I think is, yeah, I could. I wonder a lot about what percent of social media is exactly that stalking the exes. Elizabeth, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. We'll be right back in just a second. We're going to talk with the CEO of one of the top, if not the top hotel brand in the world. We will be right back. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us. I am very interested uh, really curious to talk to my next guest. We have decided to treat cannabis on this show as a great business opportunity for entrepreneurs. And we've had some amazing cannabis guests on in the past, including the editor of the number one uh, newsletter website platform. It's like a web, so, uh, you know, a news resource about cannabis. And so we're going to continue that today. I know that it's still illegal in a lot of places, including where I live, but in a lot of places it is legal. And so it's a weird space. Anyway, I am very excited to introduce Dr. Bridget Cole Williams. She is author of courage in cannabis, which is an uh, anthology about the issue. It's got some amazing contributors that we will uh, talk about that, including Mike Tyson. She has just released the second edition and it is on that Amazon place and it is selling very well and is highly rated. Dr. Williams, welcome. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me, Jim. 
It is my pleasure. Where are we on the path toward full uh, national legalization? Are we going to get there? Is that the goal? Give me an update. Well, I don't it's funny that you say, is that the goal? Um, I think it depends on who you ask. <clears throat> um, you know, right now, um, access to cannabis medicinally or recreationally is a state by state issue. I do think when, you know, pharmaceutical companies are developing, um, cannabis medical products. And I think when those become much more widespread, you will see um, more legalization because at that point they're going to want to have it FDA approved and covered by insurance. And I think the turning point won't be all of, you know, the growers or necessarily the people's desire for access. I think it's going to be the pharmaceutical uh, demand. And, and when they're ready, I think the country will turn. <laughs> That's just so ironic that it's the, drug companies doing mm -hmm. this yeah, anyway we could talk yeah. days about that yeah that's another subject yes definitely. it is mm -hmm. tell us about the latest edition congratulations on the book tell us about courage and cannabis is it mm -hmm. volume two or edition two or tomb you know, we've you know i i always uh knew from with even our first first book that I would likely do a second. Um, but of course, not until the second one uh, was in development, did I have to figure out what do we call them? Right. And so we've been calling them volume one and volume two. Okay. Tell us about volume yeah. two. So uh, volume two is actually um, 39 contributors with uh, different various stories in the cannabis space, anywhere from patients to doctors and lawyers and, and legacy market, um, people, uh, you know, teachers and, you know, everything in between, um, that really share. We have people that are in the more, uh, uh, more corporate aspect of the cannabis industry and people that are more in the homegrown aspect. And they all share stories about how cannabis or CBD has changed their lives. Um, one unique aspect of this book is that some of the people that have a prominent voice in the cannabis space that I've either known about or encountered over the last two years did kind of like a short testimonial and we called them sparks. And so these are people that really, you know, affected me in one way or another and brought in a little bit of a shorter version of their story being busy and, and, um, active people. And we even have a contribution from the posthumous, um, pa first cannabis patient, legal patient in the United States, which was, uh, you know, Robert C. Randall, who wife contributed um, an aspect of his book uh, to share that experience as well. So some really interesting aspects and stories. Excellent. Your mm -hmm. background, I think, is relevant in this. Can we talk about that for just a second? You are mm -hmm. a real doctor, a real family physician. Mm -hmm. I think that's relevant. How mm -hmm. you don't normally run into a family physician in the cannabis space. Will you give me that? Right. 
Well, you know, I, um, I've always been one that was, uh, very interested in being a patient advocate. And, um, even when I started my career, I, I spent, you know, almost, uh, 20 years at the Cleveland clinic early in my career, I became frustrated because, you know, the visits were somewhere between seven to 15 minutes long. Patients were complaining. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to have more conversation, more education. Um, I was frustrated as well. And they were tired of the, the factory style approach for every diagnosis. There was a pill. The art of medicine was kind of, you know, going away. And this more pharmaceutical based medicine um, approach was what people were getting. And I was frustrated as well. And I actually started helping patients get off of medications, putting them on my lunch hour at the end of the day to have deeper conversations. One of those patients asked about cannabis as an option for her diabetes and breast cancer. And at the time I knew nothing really about cannabis. I Honestly, I started looking up information to kind of convince her how wrong she was about this. In the process, I started seeing that there was all this medical information that was out there that I completely didn't expect. And so from there, I really had a lot of faith in her, followed her in her journey of making edibles and smoking. I learned about how to dose it and saw her health change and transform very differently than my pharmaceutical patients. And that's really how I got involved. I felt like patients weren't being seen and heard, and they were interested in things that we weren't even willing to discuss. And I, I felt like I wanted to be a part of that. Interesting. What are the conditions that are helped by this? Medical conditions. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think number one um, is definitely pain conditions that obviously it's the most common condition that anyone goes to the doctor for. And um, whether you're smoking or edibles or topicals, I think pain is really the first and foremost what people um, seek out. After that, there's PTSD, which, you know, we're, we're in a, you know, we're in a different world where so many people suffer from, uh, from trauma and anxiety. And so that's a very common one as well. I have a lot of cancer patients, um, you know, that, that struggle. And, and honestly, we have certain conditions that we can provide cards for, but a lot of people really come in for anxiety, depression, and insomnia. A lot of people aren't sleeping, but there, there's so many conditions that cannabis can help. And, um, it's really just understanding how and the different aspects of cannabis to be able to present it and provide it in a way that people can access it and, um, find it useful. How do you In, in, uh, how do you take cannabis with kids around? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, people don't and have, how do you have that conversation with them. Sorry to interrupt. How do you tell them in an honest way? Hey, this is, you know, this is, you can't talk about this at school. You know, I mean, there's so many right. implications to this. Right. So, I mean, things are definitely evolving. Um, but first of all, you know, I do ask people, do they have small children and how do they want to address this? Right. 
Um, you know, you don't have to smoke it by any means. And, um, and so people use it in tinctures, which is, you know, a small bottle with a, a dropper and they put, um, an oil underneath their tongue and allow it to absorb into, um, the vasculature underneath their tongue, which is probably the easiest way, but people also do edibles and, um, vaping, although it's not the most recommended, you know, for occasion we need something incredibly fast acting. It doesn't leave the same odor that you'd get when you're burning it. Um, topicals are probably, you know, people that are apprehensive, topicals are the best way to start. I think what's most important is that when you are utilizing this as medicine, it needs to be put away, just like you would put away any sort of medicine pills. You don't want small children around and your medicine is sitting out and them not knowing end up ingesting it. And so you need to teach safety just like you would do with any other medication. That is good advice. Dr. Williams, talk to me about the financial side of this. I... Mm -hmm. Have heard that some of the industry is having trouble competing with the black market still, and mm -hmm. that, that it might be overtaxed and overregulated in some places, mm -hmm. and that the the stores aren't taking off or not doing well. Uh, tell me if that's true or not, and also what is uh, I don't want to be uh, or ask something that's none of our business, but how does the clinic the what your clinic is what green harvest i'm sorry i don't remember yeah green harvest health right how does that mm -hmm. fit into your financial picture in other words this is a show about entrepreneurship talk to us mm -hmm. about the business side of pot mm -hmm. <laughs> so i would say that depending on the state the um illegal market can be an issue and um, unfortunately, um, in some states, it is more widespread than the dispensaries themselves. You know, you, you definitely, when you're talking about overregulated, you want medication that is properly tested. You know, you don't want aspects, you, you don't want to ingest or, or have something where it's been laced with who knows what, or it has mold in it, or pesticides, or some foreign aspect that you don't want in your medicine, right? So I do think lab testing is incredibly important, but um, in, in some places, the illegal market is as is uh, financially successful and widespread as the dispensaries themselves. And some dispensaries have closed because of it, which is unfortunate because these people do a lot of investment to be able to open up these stores, to, to educate their staff, to provide quality medicine for their um, customers and to have it kind of canceled out by the black market is definitely unfortunate. Um, you know, I've had Green Harvest Health, and, and I also opened up Dr. Bridget MD, which is a, a an offshoot of that as well. And it is, um, you know, I, we do things a little bit differently. So we're not the fast card um, 
get in, get out in 10 minutes. That's what I was trying to avoid, you know, earlier in my practice, you know, at the Cleveland Clinic. We are an office where we do 45-minute visits. We do education and treatment plans and follow-ups like any other medical office. And because of that, we're not seeing the huge volume of patients that a quick card company um, would see. You know, we're, we're seeing, we're spending more time, which obviously leads to not necessarily the same amount of income that a quick card company would have, but it is definitely more satisfying. And I feel like I'm doing um, more meaningful work in, in how I'm approaching this. I would agree. That's amazing. And I love the sacrifice there and your dedication. That is very commendable, Dr. Bridget. Uh -huh. And the 45 minute meeting also uh, fascinates me. Let me tell you just briefly my medical history. I uh -huh. was diagnosed with Crohn's 30 years ago and I've had several surgeries, several surgeries for that. And then I also got Gillian Barre about 20 years uh -huh. ago, and it still plays wow. a factor in my life and it is really a, a sucky one. And then I also get a lot of uh, kidney issues and I have uh, a bone spur in my neck that's just driving me crazy and arthritis and my joints are hurt so bad from the Crohn's. I can't tell you how bad they hurt. Mm -hmm. And I've been on all of the medicines, uh, the steroids and, you know, and you know, over a 30 year drug medical poke me in the ass odyssey, you know, and, uh, you can't tell that medical history in 15 minutes. And so 95% of the times I talk to the doctor, especially a new doctor. And I walk out going, he doesn't know anything about me. We covered right. and I have hypertension, you know, mm -hmm. we covered 2% of my, my stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so the idea of having a 45 minute visit to me sounds like utopia. Yeah. 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 It, it just seems like the, being um, a patient and spending time with your physician is really, you know, it's an incredibly vulnerable um, experience because you are kind of revealing, you know, hopefully everything that you should be telling, um, your doctor and probably don't tell a lot of other people. And, you know, half the time you're doing a physical, you're probably not dressed completely. It's a, it's a vulnerable experience. And the fact that we try to squeeze it in, in these very tight time periods is unfortunate. We're, we're missing the boat. That That's a business decision and not a um, medical or, or human, humane decision, really, right? And so to um, really get back to the roots of what medicine should be, which is more of an art um, than a pharmaceutical uh, uh, assembly line, of just, you know, one patient after another. Like when I first, when I started my career, I realized I really had a factory job and, and to be able to go into a new place, um, in the medical landscape and to do something that patients were always asking me for, they're asking to be seen, they're asking for time, they're asking for individualized care instead of just following algorithms and cannabis seemed like a perfect place to be able to execute that. 
I live in a normal neighborhood, you know, my, we don't, we don't ever say any of the words in front of our Alexis or, uh, Alexa that would make it put us on a strange list or anything, but out <laughs> of the blue, and I do believe that Alexa's listening to us. Uh, Alexa, are you listening to me? Yes. She just <laughs> turned. <laughs> oh, Alexa, stop. And so anyway, oh uh, of course it's listening. <laughs> but out of the blue, we got a five by seven glossy flyer for, uh, I don't know what they called it. I guess they said cannabis and it was, you know, for one of the websites and I live in Georgia, which is not a legal uh -huh. state. How are they getting away? Is that going to be a, is it, is that a trap from the F or the Georgia BI trying to catch us? Well, I mean, Georgia now has a medical program. It's not widespread and, but they do have, they've opened some dispensaries. It's an incredibly low dose THC at this point, but they do have a medical cannabis program now. So you're probably getting that out of the fact that it's a brand new program. They're reaching out to everybody. Well, I mean, this was from a commercial website, not, mm -hmm. you know, well, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, it's, uh, in Georgia, it's still right up there with killing people. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> and what do you hope or no, let me change the question. Tell us one of the cool stories from the book. So mm. tell us some of the incredible people in the anthology and give us a story or two. Yeah. So gosh, really an amazing group of people, um, reached out and wanted to participate in this. Um, you know, I think one of the first ones that really hit me is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a patient story, but also kind of a political story in the sense that this was a, I believe a fourth grade teacher. Um, her name's Bronwyn Scarberry, who had, uh, some sort of <clears throat> medical issue was doing physical therapy, um, did not want to take the opioids and painkillers that were recommended, um, didn't do well when it came to like Motrin and some of these other aspects. So before she would ever go to, um, physical therapy, she had a vape pen and it was really just to decrease her inflammation and decrease some of her pain. So she could do the physical therapy. If you've ever done physical therapy, you kind of come out sometimes worse than you walked in, you know, initially. So she would keep it in her purse, um, and actually keep it in her car. So here, this was during, um, when schools were half in school, half, you know, at home because of COVID and by mistake, she didn't leave it in the car and she's kind of wheeling her computer around one classroom to the next half kids are in class. Most, most of them are at home doing this virtual education and she kind of dropped, uh, I think her laptop into this bag kind of you know kind of dropped it in there thinking there was really nothing in there and it broke the vape pen and so she kind of runs to the bathroom to wash you know whatever it was off 
and clean it up and took what was left out to her car, continued with her day. When she came out at the end of the day of teaching, the bathroom that she went into had like a caution sign over it. And she's walking her kids out to the bus and outside is the police and the superintendent and the principal. And basically, because this vaping broke, they accused her of getting high at work and she's no longer allowed to teach. They said if she was to return to teaching, she would have to go through extensive rehab programs for addiction and um, she lost her career over a broken bait pen. And um, it is emotional and it's telling of a time where, you know, in the future, this would not even really be an issue. Clearly, the fact that she left it, you know, she would not, any other day, she never would even take it into the school. So by mistake, it, it was in her, her bag. But um, it does definitely makes you think about the harshness of how people view this. Um, and it was simply the medicine that she used for her medical condition. So that one always really throws me and is always of a concern, um, you know, about how people's lives change, you know, because of this. Um, other stories, gosh, are, no, it's an upbeat uh, story now, please talk to I'm Bridget. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I brought you down. I'm sorry. And I have to tell you all, all the stories are really written in a very inspiring tone because I do want people to walk away with this sense of, you know, understanding what cannabis can do and having some inspiration, you know, behind it. Um, you know, some other great stories I would say, gosh, uh, that I, that I was really drawn to in this book is, um, a woman, Amy Carter, who, Son, uh, gosh, was very, um, had extreme ADHD and, and, um, emotional, um, even autistic type behavior, very violent, out of control. Um, the school system said that she, they, she would lose her son and, uh, that, you know, he was getting bigger and physically violent and it was so, so hard for her. And, she eventually ended up, this is in Michigan, ended up saying, you know what, I'm just going to try this cannabis thing. And the kid who was violent and actually like she, she was so severely depressed and she really did think I'm not going to be able to raise my own child um, is now, I think what, 16 years old, he, he started using cannabis on a regular basis to calm him. He was able to go to school, interact with other children. He, it made him to what one would say is normal. And he was able to then get the education that he wasn't even able to obtain because of his issues before that. And um, now he does talks with her. Um, um, about cannabis and, and how it changed his life and incredible, inspiring woman. And, um, you know, she created an organization around autism and cannabis and giving people the opportunity and even just done legislation because one of the issues that developed was, um, 
him not being able to use be be able to use it at school um just like any other kid that had to use like an inhaler or medication you go to the nurse they give you medication you go on with the day um she was looking to create legislation that would allow her son to do the same thing and but it is an inspiring story because he's a great kid now and uh what she had to go through was uh, just mind-blowing. So, yeah, it's made a difference. Doctor, we only have about a minute left. What about the sure. other end of the spectrum where we get Wayne and Garth or Cheech and Chong? You know, the, uh, the stereotype, you know, stoner, uh, Sean Penn and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, yeah, that's a concern. Know- Right. So a lot of what I have done in my career in cannabis is fighting the stigma. And though there was a place for that at one time, um, a lot of that, that what you were seeing was really meant to deter people and make fun of it and to make, and to not, and to kind of uh, push it into the cursory um, away from mainstream America, right? That that was the stoner, that was the pothead, that was, you know, the the person you you didn't want your kid to grow up to be, right? And so, I, I think we're slowly uh, getting away from those images and, and those ideas. Um, it is something that can be used medicinally and equally used socially and recreationally, and much safer um, than alcohol use. And I think as we evolve, we'll, we'll see this, you know, cannabis beverages will be probably as everyday and common as alcohol and alcohol probably will lose a little bit of its grip because it doesn't have the same, you know, cannabis doesn't have the same amount of violence and addiction and, and, um, health, uh, detriment that, um, that alcohol does to your body. And so, yeah, the, the old stigma is there and the old wise tells and, and propaganda is out there. But, um, now cannabis is something that everyday people utilize and you don't have to fit into those ideas to, um, seek wellness in your life. Dr. Bridget, great. Great information and so well said. How do we find out more? Follow you online, please. Yes, absolutely. So to just learn more about our book and the authors, you can go to courageincannabis.com. And of course, you can purchase the book on Amazon, wherever you are in the world, um, and be able to uh, read and be inspired by these amazing stories. And just to learn more about what I do, my consultation services, um, I am at drbridgetmd.com as well as drbridgetmd on all social media. Thank you so very much for being with us, and I hope the book sells well. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. We're out of time, and we will be back tomorrow. As always, be safe, everyone, and go make a million dollars, maybe in the cannabis industry. Bye now. (laughs) 